everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This week, I am so pleased to have a guest that's going to talk about a new paper that came out on a topic I know is on the minds of everyone, which is what goes on with gene transcription in the brains of people with autism. On the podcast today is Dr. Michael Gandahl. He is an assistant adjunct professor at UCLA and also an assistant professor in residence in human genetics at UCLA. He employs systems level functional genomic approaches in the human brain to understand neurobiological mechanisms. And you may have heard his name before because I have talked about other of his papers. Um, but a couple weeks ago, he published a, a paper in Nature, which he'll talk about, about how genes are expressed in the brain or transcribed in the brain in different regions, um, in different forms of autism. So not just those with idiopathic, which means known, known genetic cause versus those with um, a known genetic mutation. This one is called DUP15Q. So I'm so excited. We have questions already prepared for him. Dr. Gandahl, please introduce yourself and add anything that I may have missed. So thank you so much, Alicia, for the opportunity to speak with you all today. Um, I'm really excited to talk about our work. Um, and, and actually just wanted to uh, mention that I've recently moved actually from UCLA to the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm actually a little bit, I think, closer to, to, uh, to you guys now. Um, and I'm a, a, now an associate professor uh, of psychiatry at, at Penn um, and also uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I think that's great. I didn't even know that. That was news to me. So congratulations. Thank um, you. You moved to the Northeast, probably at the worst time of the year, but there you go. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself or tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your interest in autism. Yeah. Um, so I am a physician scientist and psychiatrist by by training. Um, and as you mentioned, I, I run a developmental uh, brain genomics uh, research lab now, having recently moved to the University of Pennsylvania um, and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I am trained as an adult psychiatrist and then uh, went on to do a neurogenetics uh, fellowship in the lab of Dan Geshwin at UCLA and began my lab there several years ago. And we are very much interested in using genetic and genomic tools to really understand uh, how, how brain development is coordinated and also to really understand the biological mechanisms that contribute to neurodevelopmental and, and psychiatric uh, disorders and conditions like, like autism. I've, I've always been interested in the brain, I think, since I was a little kid. And, um, you know, it's just re always scientifically been really fascinating to me. And really, it's sort of the final frontier, I think, in terms of um, the, the organ that is the most complex um, and the thing that makes us sort of uniquely human, yet the thing that we know sort of the least about. Um, and so it's always really been my goal to try to understand how the, the brain works and how the brain develops. And when I was in medical school, I, I also wanted to sort of pair uh, my, my interest in understanding the brain with, with helping people. And so um, that really was kind of what drove me to be interested in, in clinical psychiatry and uh, as, a, as a clinical field, as well as in, in terms of doing research and, and you know, really trying to advance our understanding of, of 
um, of how the brain works in contributing to, to symptoms of, of mental health. So you just mentioned a word that I think probably um, needs a little bit of explanation is the word transcription. So you are an expert in this field. You just described why. Um, but for what you particularly look at, at least in this paper, is gene transcription. So can you explain what that is? Yeah. So our um, our lab uses uh, genetic and genomic tools, as I mentioned, and, and one of the main tools that we use is to to study patterns of gene expression or transcription um, and, and how that relates to brain development. And so if you go back to um, basic uh, sci uh, science classroom from high school, you might have uh, learned and remembered that, you know, we all have uh, within each one of our cells, uh, DNA molecules, A's, T's, G's, and C's, um, 3 billion of them actually to, to be exact. And those, those uh, that DNA is transcribed into, um, certain genes that are that are turned on or often expressed in, in, into a molecule called RNA. Um, and then that, that RNA is then translated into proteins. And um, our lab is particularly interested in, in using patterns of how genes are turned on or off. This is the process of transcription um, to understand basic genetic mechanisms and, um, and to, to link genetic uh, risk variants to, um, to biology. So you're talking about the process from DNA to RNA or RNA to proteins or all? Yeah, so um, so we are, we're, we're interested in all of the above, um, but I think that the most, the most important step that we look at is the DNA to RNA step. And the reason is that, you know, we all have uh, 3 billion base pairs uh, in our DNA, like I said, on, you know, organized into 23 chromosomes, and we all have different variants um, uh, across those um, those base pairs, and you know some of those variants are linked to traits like like autism. Um, but the the search space and really understanding sort of how these variants uh, impact our biology is is so large. It's it's very hard to really understand um, what any one uh, variant or or even a, a pattern of variants is doing. And then the other thing that we know is that um, every individual is is unique. And so even though we've identified a number of, of risk genes and risk variants associated with autism, uh, likely every individual who, who has autism or, or um, a, a neurodevelopmental disorder or condition associated with genetic risk is, um, ha has a different pattern of, of genetic uh, variants. And so um, that, that, again, that search space is very large. And so the way that we try to, um, to uh, answer that uh, to to, um, to to kind of hone in on the biology is looking one step downstream. So we know that the DNA is transcribed into RNA um, and there's uh, only about 30,000 genes or so that are expressed uh, in a given tissue. Um, and, and we can measure that quite accurately with a technology called RNA sequencing uh, right now. And so we can get very accurate measures, not only of the genes that are expressed, but the exact levels uh, in which those genes are turned on and off. And so by, by honing in and looking sort of one step downstream of the DNA, but actually at the RNA molecules, we can really begin to um, quantify sort of what's happening and, and look for patterns and look for sort of the, the downstream consequences potentially uh, of many uh, different uh, genetic variants. Now, RNA is very, um, very dynamic molecules. So unlike DNA, where 
you're, uh, it basically is the same from from you know you inherit from your parents, and it largely stays unchanged in, in your cells over at, at, uh, as you develop. Um, RNA is very dynamic, so it's it's constantly changing um, over time across tissues, across cell types, in response to various stimuli, things like stress. Um, and so, in order to really kind of hone in exactly on where we think that um, we're sort of most likely to identify the um, signals, uh, the, the strongest signals in, in autism, we need to look at uh, the, the tissue that we think is most relevant. And so this is obviously the, the brain tissue. And so that's really why our lab kind of focuses on gene expression profiling um, in, in brain tissue. Now, the challenge obviously is that the brain is not uh, exactly an accessible organ. It's not something that you can just go in and take a biopsy of. Um, or um, And so for that reason, we uh, we work very closely with with uh, brain banks and um, brain tissue donation programs, and and um, get access to to postmortem human brain samples, um, both from individuals who had a diagnosis of autism as well as uh, individuals who did not or, or controls uh, neuro, uh, neurotypical controls, and um, and then what we do is we take the the brain tissue and we look at specific regions of the brain. And um, we measure the patterns of, of gene expression or, or RNA, um, and then we try to compare and look for, for differences uh, in cases and controls and to see if that can give us insights and clues into what's happening at the sort of um, the, the microscopic level, at the molecular level uh, in, in, in autism. So in this study, you collected um, 120, 112 individuals. So some of them had autism. Some of them had um, DUP15Q syndrome, and some of them um, didn't have autism. Um, and you were, that's the comparison that you just talked about. And you looked at multiple brain regions. So you looked across the cortex. Can you talk about where and the cortex that you looked and what generally those areas do? Not that yeah. they're. A number of years ago, the uh, Dan Geshwin, my, my um, uh, postdoctoral advisor, had. Uh, started kind of a research line uh, uh, along these lines, research program along these lines, where they had looked at two regions of the cortex, the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe, prefrontal cortex and temporal lobe, uh, as well as the cerebellum. And they had looked at gene expression patterns in, um, in autism cases and controls. And those regions were generally chosen because the, the frontal uh, frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex is involved in executive function, um, and the temporal lobe, the superior temporal gyrus in, in particular, is um, very much involved in sort of speech and language production and, and comprehension. And um, and so these were, uh, you know, bro broadly associated with um, with cognitive domains that, that we think are affected in, in autism or, or related neurodevelopmental disorders. And they had um, in, in these previous paper from, from 2011, and then one that, that we were uh, extended in, in 2016, we had looked at, at these, these three brain regions um, and found very characteristic uh, molecular signatures of, uh, uh, of autism particularly in the two cortical regions. And so um, the, the major findings that, that we were building on were that 
um, if you if you look at the gene expression patterns in in autism uh, individuals with autism compared to controls in these two cortical regions, um, you'll see this very characteristic pattern where genes that are involved in inflammation and genes that are involved in sort of neural immune processes uh, tend to be um, upregulated or activated or increased in expression. Um, and genes that are um, down uh, genes that are involved in, in synapses and sort of communication between neurons and also plasticity, sort of how neurons adapt uh, to, to um, and change with sort of learning and memory that th those processes were downregulated in the, the cortex. And the um, and, and these these findings were fairly specific to the cortex. So that we, we actually didn't see significant changes in this, the cerebellum um, uh, at the, when, when we were looking. And the other major finding from the, uh, the original work was that when you look in in a, a neurotypical brain, and you th there are these very uh, the, these established patterns um, where if you compare two brain regions with each other, um, there there are sort of normal gradients in, in gene expression that sort of define um, the the what we call the cytoarchitecture of, of the cortex, and meaning that the two brain regions um, have different functions, and they actually have a characteristic signature of gene expression that differentiates them normally um, as you sort of go along the the, the axis uh, from the front of the brain or the anterior part of the brain to the posterior part of the brain or the, the back of the brain. And so if you just took, say, a temporal, uh, a region of the temporal lobe and a region of the frontal lobe, in a, a neurotypical brain, there would be probably about 500 genes that sort of differentiate that, that are different between them. But when we look in autism, uh, individuals with autism, uh, that number was only about 50. And so that really suggested that there's this sort of attenuation of, a, of, pat, of what we call sort of cortical patterning or, or that the sort of normal gradients that differentiate or, or make the regions of the cortex look um, sort of specialized were, were very much attenuated in, in autism. So that, that was sort of the basis for the work that we did and, and, and just published a, a few weeks ago, um, where we really wanted to then um, kind of explore how uh, generalizable these findings were, you know, beyond the two regions of the cortex that we had looked at before to say, you know, is this something that's sort of widespread uh, um, everywhere across the cortex or are there specific regions that are involved that, um, that really sort of tell us something uh, specific uh, about, about the, the biology of autism? We profiled now 11 different uh, brain regions um, spanning the entire uh, cortex, the entire neocortex in 58 uh, individuals with autism and about 50 controls. And these 11 brain regions span all of the four cortical lobules. So going from sort of the frontal regions of the brain to the temporal lobe, to the parietal lobe, and then finally to the very back of the brain where it's the occipital lobe, the primary visual cortex. We used all, all of these samples to really kind of build a, a map of, of how these molecular signature is is distribute uh, is the, the sort of the spatial extent and generalizable uh, nature of this molecular signature uh, in in autism and what we found was 
the signature that we had seen before, this sort of upregulated immune and, and uh, neural immune and inflammatory signal and downregulated synapse signal was present essentially everywhere across the cortex, um, meaning that everywhere we looked, we saw, we saw the same characteristic pattern, um, really indicating that this is a brain-wide or at least a cortex-wide phenomenon. But even though it was present everywhere we looked, there were some regions of the brain that were more affected or that showed sort of greater magnitude of change than others. And the regions that were most affected actually tended to be towards the back or the posterior part of the brain. And, and the, the one region that especially stood out was the primary visual cortex, um, which is where visual information comes into the cortex uh, uh, for the first time. It's sort of how visual information enters the, the, the neocortex part of the brain. And, and this was quite surprising to us. We didn't really expect that the very low level visual processing to be um, dramatically affected in, in, in autism, which is what this the region uh, of the brain really uh, the, the functional um, functions as. And so to give you sort of an example, if you um, had a stroke and there was a, a leak or a lesion in this region of the brain, it would cause something called cortical blindness, where visual information, um, it, where it, it's essentially um, somebody who can't see, but um, but their eyes are working fine and visual information is getting in uh, is, is coming to the eyes and, and getting into the brain, but it can't be processed uh, in the cortex um, to the, the same degree. And we, we know that that's not something that we typically see uh, in, in individuals with autism, um, but we do know that individuals with autism tend to have um, significant changes and uh, alterations in how they process incoming sensory information. And so we, we think that that's potentially what, what this reflects is that um, this, this represents uh, sort of a signature of, of sensory processing or, or processing of sensory information more, more broadly. So there, were there was multiple things I wanna follow up on. One is this continuation of this pattern where there's a decrease in the expression of genes that have to do with things like the way that cells connect, the way um, cells grow out, um, the way they, you know, turn into from from different types of specialty neurons, the differentiation, um, and then also an upregulation of genes involved in um, the immune system of the brain, which is different than the immune system of the body, right? So, um, so what what you're saying is that this pattern kind of was consistent across the, the brain regions, um, but but highest in the, the visual cortex. And that's kind of like a marker of, of general overall sensory issues rather than a visual thing per se. When you talk about like this, um, the transcription, are you talking about the number of genes that are affected or the amount by which they're affected or both? Yeah, so that's a great question, and um, I think your your synopsis there also was exactly spot on in terms of kind of how we interpret uh, these findings. But um, so everything that we're measuring here is is relative. So um, we're really looking at how 
Um, it, it's not that the gene is turned on or off. Basically, the brain, everywhere we look, there, there's about 20 to 25,000 genes that are kind of expressed at any given time in this in this tissue. And that it's it's really just slight differences in the sort of magnitude of, of a gene's expression. So it's it's expressed a little bit at a higher level or a little bit at a lower level. Um, and we can look for patterns uh, among the genes that are kind of a little bit more upregulated or a little bit more downregulated and look to see if those fit with known biological pathways and processes. And, and that's sort of how we come to this conclusion that the sort of neural immune processes um, the, uh, are, are slightly more active or slightly more upregulated up or increased in expression in, in autism and that the uh, genes involved in, in how neurons communicate and synapses communicate uh, are, are slightly downregulated in, in the brains uh, from individuals with autism. So we just came off a couple of weeks ago, a podcast about rare genetic variation and common genetic variation. And sometimes there's both, most probably there's most of the time there's both, but did the genes that you were looking at, were they a result of rare genetic variation or common genetic variation or both? And I do know you also looked at a group um, of individuals who had duplication of an area of chromosome 15, which is, of course, a rare variation. Do you have any insights on where, what, what types of genes are upregulated or downregulated, or is it all, all of the above? Right. So we we tried to answer this question in a couple different ways. First, uh, as you indicated, we we were able to sequence a small number um, of of individual uh, brain samples from a small number of individuals who have a rare genetic syndrome called Du15Q syndrome, which results um, from a duplication on chromosome 15 of, um, of uh, uh, several genes. Um, and that is known to be strongly associated with both the development of uh, or, or risk for autism as well as things like epilepsy. And we when we looked at the brain samples from, from Du15Q syndrome, compared to controls, we see very similar patterns to what we see in idiopathic autism or in the other individuals with autism where we don't have an, a known strong genetic risk factor presence, or at least that, that we're aware of in, 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 in those samples. So the fact that the pattern was very similar, um, it tells us that that sort of this, this the, the genetics um, the, the rare genetics certainly can recapitulate what we're, what we're seeing there. Um, and in, and the other thing to note was that the, the pattern was, was similar, but actually even stronger in, in those samples. So they showed even more sort of magnitude of, of change, um, or of, of impact, but, but the, but the pattern was, was quite, uh, quite similar. The, the other way that we try to address this question is we look at the genes that are turned, that, that are that are different, that are differentially expressed, or these these groups of genes, um, and we try to cluster them into um, modules, which kind of refers to um, we expect some of these genes to kind of go up or down together at, uh, across the samples, and we um, we can use some 
uh, machine learning techniques to sort of group them together based on how similar their patterns are. And, um, and then we look to see, do these genes that kind of cluster together, are they enriched for other known risk factors for, for autism? So not necessarily genes that, uh, risk genes that the individual uh, subjects would have in their germline, but but as a group, are, are any of these uh, genes kind of, uh, or, or, or modules kind of uh, showing us enrichment uh, for, uh, for known genetic risk factors? And, and we found two that, um, that were strongly enriched for both common um, and rare uh, variants. So we found, sorry, one, one module that was strongly enriched for, for, for both common and rare genetic variation associated with autism. And this was a module that was downregulated across the cortex and contained a number of genes that were involved in synaptic plasticity. Um, so that sort of means like when, when sort of neurons um, are more active and sort of firing together, they, they turn on these, this program of gene expression that sort of wires them more closely together. And it's how kind of neurons learn and sort of, um, uh, um, and uh, sort of the molecular basis for, for learning and, and memory. And, and a number of the, those genes that were downregulated across the cortex uh, also enriched for uh, known risk genes for, for autism genes. Like there was one other module of genes that was actually upregulated that was enriched for common variation. Uh, and this module was, was also present across the entire cortex that we observed. And the genes in this module were really involved in sort of abnormal protein folding. And this was the first time that we had seen any kind of um, module or group of genes enriched for common variation that was upregulated in autism. Usually they were always downregulated, but, but this was the first one that we've seen that's been upregulated and enriched for genetic risk. Um, and this was a really interesting group of genes because these are all involved in how the cell responds to stress and specifically the kind of stress of when, when, when proteins are not folded properly. And so as proteins are made, sometimes um, there's slight errors or, or there's, there's stress in a cell and, and a protein may become misfolded. Um, and there's certain machinery within the uh, cell or to address and, and um, abnormally folded proteins. And, and that was a signature that we observed uh, in, in our, that was upregulated uh, in the, the autism cases across the cortex as well. Why do we see these upregulated neural immune genes in the brain? In the brains, um, and it, you know it's a really important question. And um, the immune system, um, or a, a number of the components of what we think of as the immune system, have been repurposed in the brain um, and are used to actually uh, for sort of normal developmental processes, like like pruning of synapses and and and, and normal maintenance of sort of learning and, me and memory of, of how synaptic connections form. Um, and we really think that the immune signature that we're seeing um, really kind of re reflects the, the immune machinery that's, that's used for sort of typical developmental processes in the brain, um, rather than, as you say, fighting some kind of infection or, or virus. Um, and, and, we've, and we're able to kind of hone in more specifically on, um, on the cell types, too, that are reflected 
uh, in this neural immune upregulated process. And, and what they represent are, are in general, the um, upregulation or increased sort of gene expression signatures of two cell types in particular. One is microglia. These are the innate immune cells of the brain. Um, and the other one is astrocytes. And, and these are some of the sort of support cells uh, present in, in the brain tissue. And we see signatures that both of those cell types are, are kind of activated uh, in, in autism compared with the, the control samples. All of this was done because of brain tissue, right? So individuals, this is these are findings that because they're cell specific, because they're cell type specific, you really need to understand the brains of people with autism is, and compare them to the brains of people without. And so for that, you need brain tissue. And I'm going to put a plug in for not people directly donating. I'm putting a plug in for people to learn more about the program that or one of one of the programs that collects this tissue and allows researchers like you to study it, which is the Autism Brain Net. And you guys can go to autismbrainnet.org and read about it. Um, it's a process. It's not a, it, it's something that we expect people to learn about and learn the science of um, and why this is important. And this is a perfect example about what we can do with brain tissue that we can't do with, say, scans of the brain, right? Like you can't necessarily look at cell types with scans of the brain. You can't look at transcription with scans of the brain, exactly. although scans of the brain can tell you stuff and can be very important. Um, it can't do everything. And so I really want to urge people to go to autismbrainnet.org. You can sign up for a newsletter, which just means that you get kind of a quarterly update of all the science that's coming out and why it's important for families. Um, so that's um, one thing you should you should take out of this as well as the findings itself. So with that, I also want to move to um, something that you mentioned, which is the signature or the molecular signature, the transcriptional signature in the autism brain. Um, what would you describe that as being if you could describe it as something? That's a yeah, really, really interesting question. So there there is this molecular signature this that that we see, and it's present in about two-thirds of the cases that we've we've profiled to date. Um, so it's it's pretty consistent. And this signature is characterized by this upregulation or increased sort of neural immune uh, gene expression and a decrease in these uh, synaptic uh, and, and neuronal communication gene expression patterns. Um, and so that that's what we've kind of known for for some time and uh, as this signature, um, we've in, in this work we've gone to gone a little bit further and been able to um, to relate it specifically to these cell types that I mentioned, um, that the, the neural immune signature really reflects an increased uh, gene expression activity within microglia and astrocytes, immune and support cells of the brain, and that the neuronal communication signature really that's downregulated in autism really reflects uh, a, um, a gene expression differences in, in excitatory neurons in, in particular uh, in the cortex. Um, and again, as you said, these are these are things that we we you know have to use uh, brain tissue to to be able to study, and so so it is uh, extremely important, extremely you know extremely valuable uh, for for the research that we do to have access 
access to, to tissue samples like this. What would you want families to know out of this? If you had to take one take home message for families or um, people that should be as excited as we are about these findings, like what would be the, the take home message? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's that um, for for a long time, we've been looking for a, a biomarker, I would say, of autism, like a, some way of, uh, um, you know, sort of being able to, to at, at a biological level, um, kind of get to a, a signature of, of, of autism. And, and that when we look in the, the postmortem um, brain samples uh, using gene expression like this, uh, we, we really do see this very characteristic signature that's really getting us closer to this idea of a, of a biomarker. Um, I, th I think that's really important for us because that's really getting getting to the biological roots and in particular in the brain. Um, and then I think the second thing that we would say is that, um, you know, one, one of the most interesting and, and surprising uh, pieces, uh, uh, um, results that, that we had from, from this work was that um, the molecular changes were really most pronounced in these primary sensory regions of the brain, like the primary visual cortex and, and auditory cortex. And I think that this really fits with the experience of a lot of families and, uh, and, and individuals with autism who really ex experience uh, um, uh, sensory processing changes. And, and, um, and I think it, it's been known, I think for, for uh, some time that, that sensory processing abnormalities are, are, are important parts of, of, of autism and, and really further studying and understanding them is, is, is really important. But I think that this kind of uh, adds a, a biological explanation or, or sort of put, puts the, the biology there as well um, and, and, um, and is, is really um, exciting, but also important for us to kind of keep looking into how the brain processes sensory information as a, you know, potentially further unwinding the, the clues as to the, the biology of, of, of autism. One of the questions we got uh, before we wrap up from from um, a family member was, um, you know, could you kind of based on the the phenotypic or the behavioral profiles of individuals, right? So some people have a hypersensitivity to sound or lights um, or touch. Some people have a hyposensitivity, and so they they you know th there's many different theories, but they they crave. Um, different sounds or lights or sensory modalities. Um, some people are um, um, have cognitive disability. Some people have average or superior cognitive ability. Um, were you able to tease any of that out from from what you did? Yeah. So this is a great question and something that that people often ask us about and. The the short answer is not not really um, that we we have um, some phenotypic information about the different symptoms and and um, uh, court, uh, symptoms and, and courses uh, of the individuals that we profiled, but we we don't have enough in, uh, information yet to really be able to make clear cut statements of you know this gene expression signature corresponds to this type of a, a symptom. Um, in, in autism, and and that's you know something uh, another reason why we are um, always trying to increase the the number of samples and, and size uh, of the studies that we're working on, and, and gather as much information as we can to really begin to tease out these these important 
um, associations between symptoms and, and the molecular changes in, that, that we see in the brain. Um, what we can say um, with a fair, fairly high degree of confidence is that um, that we can sort of rule out certain things. So we've ruled out, for example, um, things like epilepsy, which we know it tends to be um, more common in, in individuals with autism than in, in the general population. Um, and certainly was was present in, in some of the individuals that we profiled, but we are able to, we have enough information to kind of rule out that, that the changes that we're seeing are, are due to sort of more epilepsy or, or something like that, as, as opposed to more uh, related to, to autism. That's another plug for more people to at least be aware of the need for this tissue, because actually, if you think about it, 20 years ago, taking 112 brains, right, um, would have been completely unthought of. And so, you know, it was literally a three or four per group, and they were um, not able to look across the brain. They looked at, you know, subregions of the brain and were very specific about cell types, which is great. We know a lot. We know a lot because of those early studies, but as we know more and more people have, have donated, we've been able to, or scientists have really been able to expand what they know. This was an unthinkable study 20 years ago. So imagine where, where things could go. So, you know, we started this study eight, eight years ago, and it's really taken us that long to put together this really a collection of un unprecedented size and, and breadth in terms of just studying the, the comprehensive um, spatial landscape of, of the cortex in, in, in autism. And, you know, when we went into the study, originally we had pretty specific hypothesis about the regions that, that we thought were gonna be affected. Um, and of course, when we actually looked at the data, we were surprised to see that the regions that actually showed the largest signature in the, the visual cortex were, were the ones that we thought were gonna be the least affected. Um, and so that really has, has changed our, our paradigm in terms of you know, where we go next and, and how we interpret these findings. But, but the point is that the only reason that we saw that was because we took this sort of large scale approach to really kind of comprehensively compare and contrast across many regions. So I, I think it's, um, you know, speaks to, to why we need to cast a wide net and really look uh, across and compare and contrast um, in, a, in a large scale way to really find the most important signals in, in this type of study. Well, um, do you have anything else to add that I didn't ask or we didn't get to discuss? Uh, I mean, I could probably spend hours <laughs> talking about <laughs> I know, I know, uh, I know. about this, and but no, it was it was really wonderful um, to to have the opportunity to talk about our science. I think thank you for um, some really interesting questions, and um, thank you all for for listening and and appreciate uh, the the work that, that we've done. Thank you. We will be talking again soon.